to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast outlining a life spent working with some incredible children and introducing you to them and their families. In this season, we will also meet some amazing colleagues and hear their stories. Here is your host, Chris. Please come and join him. So welcome to the second episode of season two. I've called this episode Let's Dance for reasons that will become clear as we go on. Without wasting any more time, let's meet the child that we're going to talk about in this episode. Ella was an eight-year-old girl when she was referred. The story was relatively straightforward. She'd been quite well until about a month before she was admitted to Sheffield Children's Hospital. She then had a fairly mild sore throat, which had resolved without any need for treatment. Following that, she remained completely well until three days before her admission. In those three days, there was a dramatic change in her. Her parents had initially noted that she seemed excessively fidgety. Over a matter of a few hours, this deteriorated to the extent that Ella became completely unable to stand or walk. Along with this, the family had noticed a striking change in her speech, which had become very difficult to understand. They felt that the content of her speech was normal, but the speech itself was slurred and quite jerky in nature. Ella's parents also noticed that she couldn't keep her hands still, but she would disguise this by making very rapid movements, as though she was intending to make those movements. In addition to the change in Ella's movements, there was also a change in her behaviour. She started to become quite obsessive about certain things. For example, her bedsheets had to be completely straight, otherwise she had become extremely upset. In retrospect, the family reported that school had noticed an intermittent deterioration in the quality of her work over the previous couple of weeks. Ella was admitted to her local hospital where she was examined, and following this she was discussed with me. I suggested that she should be transferred to the children's hospital in Sheffield immediately, and this happened that same day. When I saw Ella, the family gave exactly the same story. What was immediately obvious was that Ella just couldn't keep still. She had persistent, jerky, fidgety movements affecting both her arms and her legs, and it was this that was preventing her from walking. She couldn't hold a knife and fork. She couldn't write with a pencil. Indeed, she found it difficult even to hold anything in her hand for any length of time without dropping it. On formally examining her, I also noticed that she couldn't keep her tongue out for more than a second or so, and when I asked her to squeeze my hand, she would continuously squeeze and release, demonstrating a classical so-called milkmaid grip. Ella was also very emotionally upset when we met. This seemed more than I could simply explain by the fact that she'd been admitted to hospital, and by the fact that she'd deteriorated. One minute she would be happy, the next she'd be crying and inconsolable. She continued to compulsively straighten her bedsheets and became very upset when she was unable to do this herself. Yet, despite this at times, she'd be surprisingly happy and content, really out of keeping with the situation in which she found herself. On formal examination, the other positive finding was this persistent jerky movement. This pattern of movement disorder is called chorea. Given the story of a sore throat about a month or so earlier, the absence of any neurological abnormality other than the career and the emotional ability, I was fairly certain that Ella had a condition called Sydenham's career. 
I arranged for some further investigation. Ella had a normal MRI of her brain. A lumbar puncture revealed that there were no abnormalities on microbiological or chemical analysis of her cerebrospinal fluid. We obtained a swab from her throat, which we sent for bacterial analysis, and this came back negative. However, a blood test looking for recent evidence of streptococcal infection showed a very strongly positive result, suggesting that there had indeed been a recent streptococcal infection. We also arranged for Ella to have an ultrasound scan of her heart, called an echocardiogram. This showed some very mild leakage from one of the valves, the mitral valve which lies between the left atrium and the left ventricle. All of these findings confirmed the diagnosis of Sydenham's chorea. We gave Ella a course of antibiotic treatment with penicillin and placed her on a regular preventive or prophylactic dose of penicillin. She also received a five-day course of intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG. We've previously discussed the use of IVIG in a different condition, in episode 4 of season 1. The reason for using this in Ella's case was again to damp down the abnormal immune response which had occurred to the streptococcal infection, and which was responsible for her symptoms. Because the chorea, the abnormal movement, was so intrusive, and was causing such severe impairment for Ella, I started her on treatment to try to reduce the amount of abnormal movement. I also involved our physiotherapists in a program of rehabilitation. Within a few days, Ella's abnormal movements had significantly reduced, and she began to be able to take a few steps, although she still needed considerable support. I increased the dose of the medication we were using to reduce her abnormal movements, and her walking steadily improved although she still had a lot of jerky movements of her hands. Within a few days, though, she was ready to go home, and we saw her back in the outpatient clinic a few weeks later. When I saw Ella in my outpatient clinic, she had clearly improved a great deal. She was walking independently, although she was still a little unsteady on her feet, and her mum reported that she tired very quickly. Her hand movements, too, had improved, and she was able to hold a pencil and draw although she still wasn't able to write. Her mum reported that she tired very quickly. The main ongoing problem, though, was with her mood and behaviour. Ella was extremely easily upset and would become tearful even with what seemed to her parents the most trivial problem. Her obsessive-compulsive behaviours had become much more pronounced and this was making life very difficult for her as she'd become intolerant of certain types of clothing, would only take certain types of food, and only if it was arranged in a certain way. She became extremely upset if her bedclothes were disturbed. I arranged for Ella to see our psychologist, liaise with school, and arranged to review her fairly soon in the outpatient clinic. Although Ella's physical difficulties improved fairly quickly, such that she only had very mild residual problems with abnormal movement by three months after her illness, it took a much longer time for her to recover from the acute emotional and behavioural change that had accompanied her illness. Ella needed a lot of support at school, and her parents needed a lot of support in helping her to manage her emotional difficulties. The family really struggled. They had to learn to get to know a new Ella, and to deal with the issues that had never previously been a problem for her. 
Fortunately, over time things did improve, and although even two years later Ella still experienced abrupt swings in her mood, and she remained more fixed in her routines than she ever had been prior to the illness, her parents felt she was largely back to normal. Because of Ella's need for support, I continued to see her for several years. She was able to come off all the medication we'd given her to control her abnormal movements within 18 months, but the process of recovery took several years. Of course, it became quite difficult to know how much of Ella's emotional upset was the aftermath of her illness and how much was the imminent arrival of adolescence. And in fact, this is one of the things we often struggle with when we're dealing with children. Sometimes when a child has a neurological condition, it's really hard to know whether what we see over time is the consequence of that illness or simply the impact of what you could call normal development. In many ways, of course, this doesn't really matter because what's important is that we deal with the child and provide support where it's needed. The ultimate aim of any medical intervention in children is to lead us to the point where medical intervention is no longer required. So let's think about Sydenham's career. In fact, in contrast to last week's episode in which we discussed a fairly new condition, career and Sydenham's career is a very old condition. Career itself was described way back as far as the Middle Ages. The original descriptions really date from the times of the Black Death when there were numerous epidemics sweeping throughout the world and many people suffered from career. The term career comes from the ancient Greek word, which means dance. And people suffering from career at that time were described as having dancing mania. There were descriptions of people dancing wildly in circles for hours until they were absolutely exhausted. There were a lot of cults devoted to all sorts of saints in the Middle Ages. And many of the descriptions of career related these either to St. John or to St. Vitus. But actually it wasn't until 1418, when there was a big outbreak in Strasbourg, that St. Vitus was called upon to intercede, and actually he then became the specific saint of this disease. So Sydenham's career was originally called St. Vitus's Dance. In the 1600s, Thomas Sydenham, who was a physician, became very interested in epidemic illnesses. He wrote a book uh, and in that had a chapter on St Vitus's dance and I'll read you a section from that. Sydenham wrote, There is a kind of convulsion which attacks boys and girls from the tenth year to the time of puberty. It first shows itself by limping or unsteadiness in one of the legs which the patient drags. The hand cannot be steady for a moment. It passes from one position to another by a convulsive movement, however much the patient may strive to the contrary. Before he can raise a cup to his lips, he does make as many gesticulations as a mountebank, since he does not move it in a straight line, but has his hand drawn aside by the spasms, until by some good fortune he brings it at last to his mouth. 
He then gulps it off at once, so suddenly and so greedily as to look as though he were trying to amuse the onlookers. This is a really good description of Korea. It's an involuntary, purposeless and very rapid movement, particularly of the, the distal part of the limbs. There are many causes for it, but Sydenham's career has been specifically used to describe the form that relates to rheumatic fever. Although Thomas Sydenham did describe rheumatic fever, he didn't really associate that with Korea. And it wasn't really until the middle 1800s that C showed that there was a clear relationship between Korea and rheumatic disease. Quite shortly after that, a connection with cardiac involvement was recognized. And in 1866, Roger postulated that Korea, arthritis and heart disease all had a common cause. Many of the great and good of neurology, including people like Charcot, um, William Osler, Gowers, all described Korea and refined the descriptions of this condition. As I've alluded, Sydenham's career is a key part of what's called rheumatic fever. Now, rheumatic fever is an inflammatory disease and it follows on from a streptococcal infection, either a streptococcal sore throat or from scarlet fever. It's a disease of children, characteristically affecting children between about 5 and 15 years of age, although it can occur in younger children and indeed in adults. It's a rare condition in developed countries, but is still quite a common and important condition in developing countries. The symptoms of rheumatic fever are quite variable. Typically, a few weeks after a streptococcal infection, children will develop problems with fever, they may get sore joints, they may have small bumps beneath the skin, they may complain of chest pain, they may get very tired, and they may have a very odd rash. Very often they will have signs of involvement of the heart with what's called a carditis or an inflammation of the heart. There are a number of what are known as major criteria of rheumatic fever. These include carditis, arthritis, chorea, Sydenham's chorea, and the specific type of skin rash. There are also minor criteria which include things like fever, and so on. Importantly, there must be evidence of a previous infection with a particular type of streptococcus known as group A strep. And that's often identified from what's called serological testing. In other words, showing that the body has re reacted or responded to a previous streptococcal infection, as very often the actual infection itself is cleared by the time the symptoms present. Despite that, really importantly, children with acute rheumatic fever are always treated with penicillin to make sure that the bug is completely cleared, even though there's no evidence really that that makes much of a difference. One of the other key parts of treatment of the condition is immunosuppression. So people either use steroids or more, more recently and more widely the use of intravenous immunoglobulins has been used. I'm going to move away from 
talking about rheumatic fever in its broadest sense because although that's a really important condition and the cardiac component of uh, rheumatic fever is really important internationally, what we really want to do is to focus on the neurological features, which is primarily the career and the acute emotional and behavioral changes that come along with Sydenham's career. So the presentation is exactly as we described in Ella's case. The diagnosis is made by proving that there has been a previous streptococcal infection, either by showing evidence of the streptococcus in the throat at the time, or by showing evidence of serological response to the streptococcus. Although the neurological condition is fairly evident, it's really important to make sure that there isn't subclinical evidence of cardiac involvement, as this is quite commonly seen, although chorea per se may be the only manifestation of rheumatic fever in some children. It's also important to exclude other causes of chorea, and there are other causes. Most other causes of chorea are readily easily excluded. Sydenham's chorea is probably the only condition in which there is truly pure chorea without other movement disorders associated. But it is important to undertake neuroimaging to exclude very obvious changes in the brain that you might see there, to undertake genetic testing if there's uncertainty, and to exclude other inflammatory conditions. So further testing is always important, although if I'm honest, clinically it's usually very easy to recognize Sydenham's career right from the outset. How does streptococcal infection cause chorea? Now that's quite a, a difficult question to answer. We know that this is an autoimmune response and we assume that effectively the body attacks the streptococcus and then starts to mistake important parts of the brain for that streptococcus. Two really important streptococcal antigens have been identified, one called an M protein and another having a long name known as N-acetyl-beta-D-glucosamine. Essentially, infection with streptococcal disease leads to the body producing antibodies against those proteins. And then there is what's called molecular mimicry, which leads to those antibodies attacking specific tissues within the human body. And that can be brain causing chorea, heart causing rheumatic heart disease. Indeed, it can be kidneys causing a nephritic syndrome. If you look, you may find specific antibodies against certain parts of the brain known as the basal ganglia, but nobody really knows whether these are disease-causing or whether they're simply uh, an epiphenomenon. One of the important things we know about rheumatic fever in Sydenham's career is that if a person who's had this once is reinfected with Streptococcus A, they may have a recurrence of symptoms. So long-term suppression of streptococcal disease is undertaken by giving prophylactic penicillin. The outlook for the career is generally very good. Most people with Sydenham's career resolve within a two to three months. Up to a half may recur, but that's much more likely to occur if people don't take their penicillin. The neuropsychiatric features, though, can take much longer to recover. Obsessive compulsive disorder, what's called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, even mental health disorders such as affective disorders can occur.
and these can take a very long time to recover. Overall, though, the prognosis for Sydenham's career in children is good, and the most important thing is the long-term prevention of recurrence by taking prophylactic penicillin. Over the years, I've seen a number of children with Sydenham's career. In my early career, I always felt that the most significant part of the condition was the career itself. But over time, it's become clear to me that the major impact of the disease isn't just the movement, but actually the emotional and mental health consequences are far more significant for some children. And it's really important that we pay close attention to those. It's easy to be overtaken by the obvious nature of the movement disorder and not to pay attention to the emotional ability and the obsessive compulsive symptoms. But I think if we do that, we fail these children really significantly and we fail their families. I think families nowadays are much more aware of the importance of providing support for children who are experiencing emotional difficulties. And I think it's really important that we provide that support directly to the child, but also provide support to the families and ensure that schools understand what's going on as well. Because children spend as much time in school, really, as they do spend with their families. And it is important that schools understand. There's no doubt that schools that aren't well supported won't be able to provide the the educational support for the child that they need. And you may end up with a child who's being excluded from school, not because actually they couldn't make progress at school, but just simply the school doesn't understand how to provide that help. And I think any failure there comes down to us as medics not providing that information to the school. So I hope you found this episode interesting. This is a condition that probably across the world still remains common and still remains a major cause of disability. It's relatively rare in the UK, but we certainly come across it uh, certainly every couple of years in my own practice. And it's something that we, we haven't got rid of, and I don't think we're going to. It's something that teaches us a lot about uh, the fact that the brain is an organ that not only deals with basic things such as movement, but much more important higher functions such as how we feel and think and behave. Next time we'll look at uh, perhaps a slightly different group of disorders and I hope you'll join me for that. Good night. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. For more information about the podcast, please go to the website childrensdoctortales.co.uk or the Facebook page at Tales of a Children's Doctor. Please join us for the next episode where we'll hear more stories of children and their families.